you and I are both situated in Toronto, you'll remember driving along the Gardner Expressway and seeing billboards for Canopy and Tweed along the highway because there was no explicit restriction on, on those types of activities. Young and Dundas Square, one of the busiest intersections in Canada, also had billboards of major cannabis companies because at the time, it was still allowed. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Law in Canada. I'm Russell Bennett, a cannabis lawyer in Toronto. With me today is Ruth Chun, an international corporate commercial lawyer who advises companies from startup to exit. We recorded our interview over two sessions in February and March of 2022. But before we begin our chat with Ruth, please consider visiting LexisNexis Canada at LexisNexis.ca, a great legal publisher with dozens of digital legal services for all sizes of law firms. LexisNexis is committed to innovation and helping lawyers practice law better. They publish hundreds of legal textbooks, including my legal textbook, Canada's Cannabis Act, Annotation and Commentary, now in its third edition. Think about buying a copy for a loved one. It features a dark and daunting chapter on the history of the cannabis prohibition that every Canadian needs to know about. Check it out in the store at LexisNexis.ca. Now, on to my chat with Ruth Chun. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Ruth Chun. How are you? Hi, Russell. It's great to be here. I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I'm totally great. I'm so I'm so excited. We finally get a chance to talk. We've been trying to schedule this interview for ages, months and months and months. Um, and uh, and we were you were, you were about to cancel on me. And I'm so glad that you took me up on this challenge. I know it's a snow day where you are. It's a P a PA day where I am. So I've got the three kids upstairs running around. You've got some childcare issues of your own. This is cannabis law in Canada, right? This is this is practicing law in the cannabis industry in Canada. That's that's where we're at. You're, I mean, right now you're in your kids' room, right? I mean, that's yeah. This is pandemic cannabis law practice in the winter time in Canada. I think it would look very different if we were in California in the winter, but this is Ontario in February during a pandemic. We, we have no choice. This is where this is where it is all happening. And look, we're not on Bay Street and in suits. And so, you know, we, we we're we are lawyers who have chosen to have our own practice. I mean, you've got your own practice, Ruth Chun Law, right? Ruth Chun, Ruth Chun Chun Law Professional Corporation. This That's is a very serious sounding it's very serious sounding, <laughs> but, but I'm so glad that, you know, that even behind the serious title, there's actual, like, you're, you're a mom, you're, you're also working. Are you working from home? Is that where your office is? Or do you have another office? I do have another office downtown. So I do go downtown and I have been going downtown throughout the pandemic, but obviously with less frequency. Um, but because I have two small children, who were in virtual school on and off for the past few years. I was also working from home, um, making do as, as we all were, um, despite lawyers and cannabis being essential services during the pandemic, right? We all had to balance all the various things, right? Because we're not just lawyers. Um, we're also um, partners and family members and parents, right? So we had to do all of those things 
while navigating the pandemic and um, pivoting to, you know, changes to cannabis retail during the pandemic and new, um, new guidance being provided on promotions recently. Like there's, there's so much that goes on all the time, notwithstanding global events. It's a circus. Let's just admit it. It's a circus. It's, and trying to keep it all together is, I, I mean, I find it quite overwhelming. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to appear as though, you know, I've got it all together all the time, but it, it's very challenging, very challenging. And I think the breaking of the fourth wall, fifth, sixth, however many walls that we've created amongst ourselves to create these professional personas, the fact that they've all been dissolved because everyone has had their child come on a Zoom call or um, or have a pet interrupt a, a, a very important meeting or a cat show up yes. at a legal proceeding in the U.S. on Zoom, right? Um, yes. I think that dissolution of that facade and the reality of the fact that people do have um, lived experience outside of being lawyers has been really refreshing. Um, and it's not having to hide the fact that you're a parent or hide the fact that you care for your parents or or that you have other obligations, or that you have a pet. You know, exactly. It makes you more human, anyway. And I think that that's a good that's a good thing. I remember that that first time we were ever aware of. Um, you remember that it was like a newscaster who was doing this official story from you know, and then his kid ran, ran across the background, you know, and he turned around, and, and that that was that became a meme. But it was like the first time that ever happened. And now it's just like a regular thing, right? Now it's like, oh, well, okay. we got a screaming kid oh. in the background. There was even on a U.S. news channel recently a woman who had returned as uh, presenting the weather. And she had her, her young baby with her on, on the set wow. because that's just what they right. needed to do that day. And I think with people realizing the blend between life work and one's identity. I think that's more and more accepted and, and it should be right. So I think the yes. pandemic's accelerated yes. and brought to light a lot of things and things that really haven't been negotiable. And, and, and now we've just had to navigate them together collectively. So it's undeniable now. So great. It's so I, the pandemic has really made me a happier lawyer in terms of paper, because I was one of those crazy environmental guys back in law school thinking like, how can we get rid of paper? How can we get rid of these massive files? When I did articling, I remember, you know, the filing cabinets filled with giant file folders of paper and paper and paper. I, you know, I remember, oh my gosh, even as early as like 2016, when I was doing um, a case and I, I wanted to find out what the Allard, uh, the Allard case was. Yep. The and Allard so decision. I went to the our decision. So I went to the federal court and I said, can I see it please? And they're like, are you, sh you sure? It was like 20 boxes. They shipped 20 boxes from Vancouver to Toronto. So I could read the file. I read the entire thing. I mean, it's an incredible file, but like, think about that now when you could have all of that on Google drive or Dropbox or whatever, like it's incredible shift in such a short, I'm so grateful for like on <laughs> online digital files. Now it's insane how it's changed the practice, you know? And has that changed your practice too, Russell, or has it always been a paperless practice for you? I, yeah, no, I strove for paperless. I mean, I do have paper because there's, Oh, there's one file 
where disclosure came from the crown. Literally, I have pictures because it was so overwhelming. Literally, I got the disclosure from that, and I was representing 12 people. So the disclosure was literally four feet high, stacked of paper. And I had, I had to get like a cart to wheel it out of the court. It was insane. And I was just like, why can't you just give this to me on a stick? Just, or just put it on a dry, and now they have to. They have, they can't, they can't give paper out anymore. They have to, they have to put it on case lines or whatever we're using now. You know, that's um, yeah, way better. What about you? I mean, all the corporate documents. I mean, do you remember all the signing? Do you, did you do the signing table thing where you're in the boardroom yes. and you're like putting paper I mean, all around? So I do, I do like ritual in various aspects of life and the ritual of a closing room and a closing, um, uh, an in-person closing is something that I experienced as a young lawyer and as a student. I mean, I was doing securitization law where, you know, there were 267 closing folders, right? And that that was how the closing went. Wow. And you you stayed up till whatever early hour of the morning. And then at eight o'clock, there was blackberries and everybody was waiting for the wire to hit, <laughs> uh, champagne and pastries and a whole bunch of folders that you darn well made sure had signatures in them. And now, now you can close digitally with DocuSign and, you know, some of the younger yes. lawyers have never had an in-person paper closing. Um, but it is better. I mean, for me personally, I have switched to almost entirely paperless, which is something I, I struggled to do before. Um, cause I was always used to doing hand markup markups and I do like the analog process of writing and I still do, do some, when I'm, when I'm thinking through ideas, I still use a pen and paper. Um, but yes, I, I've made the, sh- the shift and I know a friend of mine, her husband also writes a textbook like you. Um, and he at, uh, in his late fifties was made the shift to completely paperless after, you know, a very, a career of being completely full of paper and killing forests of trees. And in his late fifties, because of the pandemic, he switched to entirely paperless and his uh, longtime assistant was, you know, deeming it a miracle that he actually made the change. But I think that shift has been felt by a lot of people. And that's like you said, Russell, one of the pandemic positives I think is, you know, the environmental impact of being able to move from um, relying on paper in our profession to, to digital formats. Totally. And banking too. So I remember uh, when I practiced with my dad, the checks, the checkbook, the writing out with, you know, and signing and all the handwritten, oh, they don't have to do any of that now. It's all digital banking, no checks, e-transfers, wires, and it's all paperless. I just love paperless banking. I don't know. I remember it was like, fear 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 around no how can we do banking without paper it's uh it's it's so i think it's so great personally um so okay ruth tell me we got i gotta travel back in time with you right let's go back in time because you you're you're um uh you do you call it i mean you do call yourself a cannabis lawyer or is it corporate commercial lawyer who practice in cannabis? Um, I would say, I would say corporate commercial, but I do uh, a big chunk of my practice is cannabis, um, and because I do teach courses in it, um, and I have some expertise in it, I, I think it's just endemic to my uh, what what I'm doing now in my practice. Okay, so at, can you take me back to why? Okay, you've had an incredible career so far. 
I'm sure there's more to come, but you know, people reading your bio are like, this woman, wow, okay. How, how did news strike happen? Where was the lead up to that? Can you give me some kind of background story on, on getting in there and how that all happened and what you were doing? Sure. Yeah. So I think if you look at my bio and the type of work that I do, I think risk tolerance is probably something that I'm comfortable with. And that's why I've had a, a, a career that's been international and I've been able to be called to the bar in Ontario, uh, New York, and in Namibia. And I've practiced law in, in Canada, um, in the UK and in Namibia. So I've, I've had a lot of opportunity and, and really had a lot of amazing experience. So um, if we go way back, not, you know, let's not be embryonic here. Um, but I did get my training in, <laughs> in Canada at a large firm, at a large firm. So I worked in their Toronto office with a short stint in their Vancouver office. And I was doing um, a lot of public company work. And it was really the heyday um, of the um, equity markets at the time. And so I had an opportunity to go to London and do public deals, um, equity financing, things like that at the, at the source, right at the center in London. So I joined an American law firm there, uh, got called to the bar in New York and then the financial crisis hit. Right. And so the financial crisis hit crisis hitting meant that the deal flow dried up. Um, law firms were, you know, asking people to go on sabbaticals or to go consider their MBA or moving offices. Um, and one thing I had not done in my career or as a student was a human rights law project, right? So I'd done the study abroad in Europe check. I had, I had the opportunity to do that, um, but I, I didn't have a chance to do any not-for-profit work as part of my legal development. And so I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity while the markets are completely shut down um, to go in and apply my legal skills for a human rights law project. So I applied um, to some places in Southeast Asia and in Africa, and I got invited to do a study of post-apartheid domestic violence law in Namibia. Um, with a Harvard trained lawyer. And it was just a great opportunity that was supposed to be a three month uh, research project and study um, that turned into an eight year adventure. So uh, for wow. personal reasons, I moved. Yeah. Yeah. They, That's this incredible. is not part of the, like, this is not part of the, uh, you know, career guidance meeting that you have at law school, right? Like this is, this isn't part of it. This is part of the, the choose your own adventure. Um, part of, of what you do, right. Of, of what you do as a person and curiosity to learn and also, you know, having, um, convictions about wanting to try new things and, and do great things, right. And, and apply the toolbox that we have, which is our, our law degrees and legal training. Right. Um, so that, nice. that was an amazing experience. I did a lot of, uh, I was a partner at Africa's largest law firm, I also became the first female executive for a large insurance company. Um, and I, I did a lot of really interesting board work. So I chaired a, a, a defined benefits pension fund for Rio Tinto's mine there in Namibia for their uranium mine. And that actually, while I was chair of the board, we had a Supreme Court dispute over who owned the surplus of the funds in the pension funds. So it was the mine workers versus the fund and we ended up winning, but you know, it was a very contentious, uh, high profile time. So it was super interesting and really armed me for the work 
that I that I'm doing now. And I think because I was in such a small jurisdiction and was this weird Canadian unicorn with a New York call and international experience, I, I got exposure to work um, and professional experiences that were, you know, probably reserved for people older than I was, but I was given opportunity, right? And the reason I chaired the the pension fund was because the managing director of my firm got called to the bench. And so he said, Ruth, this is an empty seat and I'd like, like to put your name forward. And I said, I'm too young for this. I don't think it's appropriate. Um, and he said, no, actually, I think a fresh perspective and someone like you would have to help to unify and navigate the entrenched conflicts on that board. Because it was a really interesting board, Russell. It was union members and then company members. So every board mm-hmm. meeting was union versus company. They treated it like a, a union company meeting. Whereas, you know, one of the first um, talks that I gave to them is as soon as we walk into this room, we are all wearing the exact same color hat. It's not union versus company. And I made them all switch seats to really emphasize the fact that we're actually, we have the same liability and the same objective here. Like we might have different stakeholder interests and perspectives that we bring, but ultimately like, let's not forget, despite the 40 year existence of this mine, this is, this fund is separate from the mine and it's, we're actually serving the same purpose. Um, so all that That's to beautiful. say, you, 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 you brought everybody together to realize you're all on the same team. And even though you have different interests, you're still serving the same team. Fund. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you see that on boards now, right? You have management members. So you might have an executive on the board of directors who, who has a job at the company, but also has the fiduciary duties as a director on that company board, right? Um, and there's tensions mm-hmm. between independent and non-independent members of, of a board of directors, but navigating the fact that you do have the same um, liabilities and responsibilities is, is something that can be very delicate at times and knowing how to manage that in a way that I think is diplomatic and productive is super um, important for all the stakeholders. And I feel like I learned a lot of that through my time when I was when I was chairing that contentious pension fund. You know, I, I just had this conversation with a, a student, a law student, first year, who is taking corporate law, and he said to me, "I can't stand this. I, 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 I don't like it at all. I don't understand it. What is it about corporate law that makes that makes sense to you? That that that." Uh, like really, in, you've, you're very excited by it. what? What can you tell me a bit about? Just like back, take take a step back and tell me about corporate law in particular. So, when I first started as a law student, and when I was a second year summer student at a big firm, I wanted to be a litigator because that's what lawyers do, uh-huh. right? You study and research uh-huh. the law, and then you create new law through jurisprudence, right? Um. And I threw myself into it. It was very exciting. Um, I wrote a really impactful memo as a second year summer student that won some environmental case at the firm and everyone went out and celebrated. But of course I didn't because I was a summer student. So I was stuck in the big office tower just writing memos. Um, and I was really excited by it, right? I thought, you know, this, this is so exciting. This is research that matters. And, um, 
But then I realized that if I was to be a litigator at a big law firm, that most of my junior career would involve just writing mean letters and receiving mean letters for the first few years of my practice, right? Like the the firm that I was at did top um, commercial litigation. So I, I wouldn't be doing any actual practical advocacy for years. Um, and then I stepped back and thought about what my motivations were for law school. And it was really for the problem solving practical ability to help people through, you know, the matrix or framework that is the law. Um, and business law really allows you to do that. And I, I do love my job and I delight in my job. And I, I think it's actually fascinating. Like I, I love, um, reading in the newspapers about corporate governance issues, right? Like when the Rogers family had their dispute and their family matters and laundry displayed all over the globe and mail in the, in, in the BC Supreme court and, and, and elsewhere, I said to people like corporate law, super interesting. Look what's happening. It's on the front page of the news. Um, and it is, you know, it's, it's a balance of so many things to consider. But for me, it's really about the problem solving aspect of it, right? A client comes to you, they've got a business idea. This is what they want to do. How do they navigate it? I mean, you, you and I wrestle for cannabis law. It's how do we navigate the regulatory landscape, make sense of it and be able to implement our, our business objectives, right? And in a way that's compliant where law doesn't become an issue, right? Like you never want laws to be a gotcha moment or a financial burden. Um, to whatever you want to do as a business um, or otherwise. I mean, if, if we were talking about criminal law, for example, but that's what excites me about business law and why I got into it. Um, and just tying back to my overseas practices is I also realized you would be jurisdiction bound as a litigator by the rules of court. Right. So I realized, Oh, unless I was, you know, in international arbitration, say in Europe or elsewhere, I really wouldn't, I would be jurisdiction bound to Ontario if I was to choose litigation where I realized that with a business law um, practice, it's, it's pretty mobile. And I think I've, I'm living proof of that. And do you currently take clients uh, that are outside of Canada? You have clients that are international or are you seeking uh, international work? I do. So uh, the client is actually uh, an issuer here on one of the Canadian exchanges. Um, But because of my expertise overseas, having done a lot of natural resource law overseas in Namibia and Southern Africa, I'm very helpful in terms of um, transactional work that involves those assets. So that's where my overlap really comes. And then I'm still called to the bar and in good standing in Namibia. So, I mean, it, it's just a really interesting nexus that I have, just as I was very interesting over there because I had Canadian and American calls um, still here for those, you know, for clients who are interested in assets in Southern Africa. I'm, I'm a very interesting um, advisor for them. And, and is there a, an emerging cannabis industry happening in uh, Southern Africa? I, I thought that that South Africa was uh, legalizing it for medicinal purposes, but I'm not 100% sure on that. There is, and I do know of... of um, oh, Malawi. Of I remember hearing about Malawi. Was Sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah, I, I, I remember reading, because I... That's the only country I've ever been to in Africa was Malawi. And they uh, they have just legalized for medicinal purposes and are considering adult use. But I don't know about other yeah, countries. So 
in in South Africa, yes, and I think some of the Canadian um, companies had been or still are invested in like Lesotho for for cannabis production. Um, and I do know of some European players who have some interests in Southern Africa. It's not evolved to the same state as it is in, in Canada yet, but I think just given the um, opportunities for growing and the labor costs and that kind of thing, I think it's a big opportunity there. Um, yeah, but I think mm. cannabis, as you and I know, is is an inter- international opportunity and market. It just it just needs to evolve domestically and abroad. Exactly. Yes. Yes. All right. So let let's go to the domestic issues uh, briefly. I mean, there's there's so much to talk about. And I know that we're we're limited for time today, so we're pro- we we have to have a part two, a Ruth Chun part two, and um, but. Uh, before we actually, before we go to the Canadian landscape, I do want to hear about your stories of New Strike and and how what it was like to be at the center of the company at that you were there before legalization, right? That's right. So we we I never actually answered your question, Russell. So I apologize. So I can do that now about how I actually got into no, the okay. industry and 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 to New Strike. So. Um, for personal reasons, I moved back home to Canada and then I had texted one of my former mining clients and I just told, told him, just want to say hello. I'm back now. And and he said, well, what do you mean by back? I mean, it was Christmas time. So he just assumed um, that I was just back visiting my family. I said, no, I'm, I'm back, back in Canada. And then, uh, and then he said, okay, don't talk to anyone else. We'll have lunch on Wednesday. I've got something to talk to you about. So I, I had assumed it was for a gold mine, right? Because previously I, I knew he was working on a gold mine. I'd, we'd done some mining projects together and I said, fine, let's talk about your mine. And then the discussion um, was about medicinal marijuana and the tragically hip. And I just said, that's very nice. I'm, I'm really supportive of your new hobbies, but I'd really, you know, like to talk to you about opportunities for employment. And I have two, two small children. And, and he said, no, I just signed a deal with a tragically hip. Uh, they're signed with one of the first 40 cannabis licenses in Canada, and you're going to be the general counsel. We're taking them public. And I just stopped and said, I don't know anything about Canadian cannabis law. And, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure this is really what we should be talking about. And he said, look, Nobody knows anything about Canadian cannabis law. You're a corporate commercial lawyer. Go and figure it out. Off you go. And it was an amazing, amazing uh, journey to go through that. So I was with the company for the Go Public uh, for Up Cannabis. Um, So that was in 2017. And in 2017 is when a lot of the, 2016, 17 is when a lot of the big issuers and big uh, companies today went public, right? So there was a, there was a frenzy. uh, There was a lot of excitement and there was a lot of support in the capital markets for, for cannabis as we were gearing up towards legalization. So it was all just very exciting. And as a lawyer, as you know, Russell, um, to be in a brand new uh, nascent legal industry is so exciting, right? To see laws mm-hmm. being written, regulations being drafted, and then to see it actually being put in, into into real life, like that is that yes. that's a dream, right? That's law coming into reality. Like that's that's the creative part of you know this is what laws can do to actually make a new industry or to um, decriminalize something like that. That to me is just so exciting. So to be right in the thick of it, you know. At, at the greenhouse, at the indoor grow facility and seeing 
um, these regulations in practice to have, you know, an 11 to 16 week growth cycle for this plant to create a product, right? Um, which was yes. now legal, which previously was not, and was being sold for for medical patients for to help them, and then eventually for the adult use market to you know usurp um, the black market and to do it in a way that was responsible and uh, keep Canadians safe and to keep children safe. Like it was just it such an exciting time, right? So as general counsel, I got to see a lot of the deal flow. So that's all the capital markets M and A fundraising part. So you know we. We raised over $150 million, which was quite a feat. Um, and it, also as a lawyer, I got to see the testing of the takeover rules for the first time. So you may know in 2016, there were um, amendments to the takeover bid rules, and they'd never been tested before until 2018. Um, when can, So in 2017, Canamed and which was license number one, Canamed and uh, New Strike had entered into a friendly plan of arrangement for a merger. And then um, right. by the end of the year, an interloper or stranger came to our deal, came around called Aurora Cannabis. Um, and they nice. made a, a bid um, to take over Canamed while Canamed was already engaged and locked into this deal with, with, with New Strike. So um, one of my law school colleagues called it the bizarre love triangle <laughs> uh, with these three parties <laughs> all trying to figure out, you know, who was going to make it to the altar, if you will. Um, and to be at right. the thick of that and to be sitting front row at the Ontario Securities Commission, hearing submissions on, you know, four questions on the takeover rules and, and what was happening with, uh, with the, the proposed transaction, the existing transaction was just thrilling, right? Um, I remember sitting beside my CEO and, you know, the Globe and Mail, the finance, every, every, the media was sitting right behind us. And he, he just said to me, like, can I go now, Ruth? And I said, No. Absolutely not. This is like new law being made right now. You are going to sit here and you are going to pay attention. This is very exciting. Um, and then I, I said, look, you can go after our, our side's submission have been made and then you, you can go. But uh, for me as a lawyer to, to watch it all happen live um, and to read the materials and just to be right in the thick of it was so fascinating, but also um, stressful, right? Because there was a lot happening corporate wise. Um, whether it was in the press with our circulars, with, with the transaction. Um, but ultimately it was a good resolution for all. So we ended up um, having a termination of our merger with Canamed and received a nine and a half million dollar termination fee. Um, so what I like to call the, the keep the ring fee, if you will, because the deal did not complete and we did not go to the altar. And then Aurora and Canamed went on their merry way and, and they completed their merger. Um, as I mentioned before, we raised over $150 million and then we were just getting poised for commercialization, right? Because legalization was, was happening later, later that year. And as a lawyer from a regulatory perspective to work with um, the QA team and really the marketing team um, on getting ready for legalization was, was really thrilling. So um, as general counsel, I, you know, I don't, I don't think this is typical for all industries, but because as you know, uh, promotions is so heavily regulated, right? I mean, they, you know, better than anyone that they copy pasted basically the tobacco act and, and put it into the cannabis act, right. Which is very restrictive. Right. Um, yes. but prior to legalization, there was this gray zone, 
right, where the ACMPR wasn't explicit about promotions, um, but there were directives from Health Canada. So I, I sat myself down into the sales and marketing team and said, okay, I'm going to be part of your team too. And, you know, I was, I was not the, the cool kid at the sales and marketing party by any means. I was actually the fun police, um, <laughs> but it was a really great creative synergistic uh, group of people to also have me there, not to, you know, not to play whack-a-mole and, and, and crush marketing dreams, not at all, but for me to be there as, you know, the guardrails and just, you know, yes, let's have um, a whiteboard with all the ideas and all the ideation you can think of, but I would just, you know, maybe trim the whiteboard to be in this space. Right. Um, and, and I think it served, I, served as well because up cannabis ended up winning some um, promotional uh, awards for their efforts and, and got some recognition from the ad space, which was super exciting and, and a great affirmation of the work that was being done. So that was great. And, you know, you, you had the support of the tragically hip and they did have a, a part in the uh, creative direction and they were, they were really wonderful um, creative people to work with. So, that was really fascinating. And then also, uh, you know, I did, I, I did all the other parts that a general counsel does. And then eventually it was the sale to Hexo, right. In, in May of 2019. So that, uh, I stayed on a little bit, uh, with Hexo after the transition. And, and then after a short and well-deserved break after, you know, two and a half years of nonstop, um, high velocity activity, then I took a little break with, uh, with my family and then, and then started my practice. Amazing. What a journey. Incredible. Really, really. Uh, it's, it's so, it's so exciting to hear you talk about it. Um, and, and all with, uh, the iconic band tragically hip, you know, the iconic Canadian band you're at the, in the epicenter of the, one of the most exciting legal changes in our country. Um, it's, uh, it's inspiring to hear, uh, the story. So thank you for that. I really, I really appreciate that. And and what was the the urge to move from uh, in-house general counsel to a private solo practice? I mean, of all things, why not go back and just be general counsel in Aurora or another, you know, just find another big uh, cannabis company or another cannabis, another ca- big company to be a part of? Why, why go back to um, or, or not go back to, but start fresh? with the sole practice? So I had, I, I uh, self-selected a mentor who um, helped me with the decision-making of how to start my own practice. So starting law school, I, I never would have thought that I would have had the career that I have had so far to date, and I'm very grateful for it. Um, so in 2019, in June, I was at the TSX as the moderator for a panel of various CEOs. So a couple of cannabis CEOs and non-cannabis CEOs just on the industry and on the markets. And then one particular CEO, I thought, you know, had some very interesting things to say and was a longtime entrepreneur um, and wasn't from the industry. So he obviously had fresh perspectives on things. So I said to him, it's great to meet you. I'm going to contact you next week. We're going to have coffee. And he kind of start looked startled and said, oh, okay, Ruth. Um, so I went to his office, he invited me to his boardroom. Um, we had 
set down coffees and he's, he said very formally, uh, well, Ruth, uh, how, how can I help you today? I am neither a lawyer nor uh, in the industry, so I'm not sure how I can be of assistance today. I said, well, you are a longtime entrepreneur and you are a smart business person. I'm at this point in my career where I um, could stay on as, you know, number four lawyer at a, a large, well-established CPG cannabis company, or I could do choose your own adventure, right? Whatever that could be. And I thought you've probably had to make these types of decisions before, either yourself or some of your colleagues. Um, what's your recommendation? And then for that, he had had the answer, right? So he called his assistant in, asked for a piece of paper, drew a line down the middle. And then on the left, he wrote down um, what I love. And then on the right-hand side, he wrote what I'm best at. And I just, I looked at him like, okay, where are we going from here? Um, and he gave me an exercise to do over several weeks. So he said, don't be a type A personality and do this all in one afternoon. That is not what, what needs to happen. What you need to do is in the left-hand column, write down all the things that you love, right? And that's professional, personal, whatever that means to you, write all those things down. And then on the right-hand side, the things that you're best at. And again, that's personal and also professional, all of the things that you think that you as Ruth are best at. So I took, you know, a couple of weeks and, and worked on the list and, and, and would write on it and think about it and add, add things. Um, and then he said, you will find that there are ways to connect the things that you love, the things that you're best at and come up with what professionally would serve you in terms of how you use your time, right? Because your job, your profession is how you're meaningfully using your time, right? You sleep for a third of your life. You're the, a big portion of your adult life is going to be spent working. How are you going to leverage what you love and what you're best at with your job, right? With how, how you use your productive time. So Ruth had to take an important call. So we had to continue our recording in a couple of weeks. I want to just dive right into the Cannabis Act and cannabis law and we were just talking before uh, we recorded that the Cannabis Act is under a three review because we've had three years. Well, Health Canada is supposed to be doing a review. So what's what's been happening? Well, is it going? You know? Well, you're right in that there's supposed to be a three-year review. It's now March 2022, and the review has not yet started. So uh, Health Canada is actually delayed in terms of enacting its review of the legislation, which it was required to do in 2021. Uh, the reasons right now are unknown for why the feds aren't initiating the review. Some pundits think it might be because of the 2021 SNAP election that was called in September of last year. Uh, but regardless, there are lots of issues that I think industry would like to have covered. Um, I think restrictions on uh, marketing and advertising, the various fees and taxes and uh, duties that are required for cannabis. I think there are lots of things that need to be discussed and reviewed by industry and by the, the legislators. Excellent. Well, a lot needs to be reviewed, but it's not being reviewed. Was there any uh, date that they said they can actually get to it? Well, considering there aren't, and ap apologies for the sarcasm, there aren't service uh, level delivery promises for Health Canada at this point. No, we don't have a date for when the review will actually take place. Right. But it is definitely welcome. Um, and I think there will be hopefully a very robust discussion because there are definitely um, many good insights on um, the review of the legislation. 
Okay. So from where you're sitting as a corporate commercial lawyer, maybe could we could we uh, dive into a little bit of the uh, challenges that you see cannabis companies face or cannabis, maybe even cannabis lawyers face with the the Cannabis Act as it is now? Uh, and maybe some, if provincial legislation is, is is a nuisance as well, like what what are some of the problems you see? I think the restrictive restrictive advertising and marketing is definitely a problem. Um, as everybody knows, it's it's pretty much a copy paste job from the Tobacco Act, and to impose the same sort of restrictions and lack of expression in cannabis marketing. Um, because of harm arguments from tobacco, it's a nonsense. So I think some more um, expansion and loosening of the rules, as well as some more direction would be helpful for everybody. Um, Cannabis is interesting because you do not have to be a producer in order to have a cannabis brand. So I think for a lot of brand only players, it's confusing when you look into the minutia of um, the section on promotion, it's about a, a license holder, right? one who is licensed to produce um, cannabis products. Um, if a brand house is not actually producing the products, where do they fit, right? I hadn't even thought about that. That's that's really interesting. So a company that is a brand house, could you just maybe, what what is that? So it's the same as white label manufacturing. So if you create the brand and the identity of a product and you have a licensed license holder who's going to produce the cannabis product for you and using their license, push it through to the sales channels, but applying your brand. Um, The brand house is only involved in actually creating and marketing the brand, not the actual plant itself. Where do they fit then under the Cannabis Act? I mean, I don't understand how, if they're not touching the plant at all, how are they bound by the same well, I, I guess the the restrictions are to everyone. It's not just to license holders, right? That's right. That's right. right. And that's where they, that's where they get caught. Um, and also all the rules, I think you'd mentioned provincial legislations, all the rules for the various provinces in terms of advertising and marketing are also um, narrower and specific province by province. So that's also where they ca- get caught for where they want to do their sales. So what, what's the ideal robust version of uh, cannabis advertising? I think we've seen lots of different examples in various states in the the U.S. Um, You have Nevada, where you can have a taxi or an Uber wrapped in a cannabis brand and um, billboards. And then you have the nascent legalizing uh, states in the tri-state in the East Coast of of uh, the U.S. where you won't have, you know, as open or uh, flashy advertising for cannabis products, but you will have some more. Um, so I think an easy way to start, especially in this in this real digital marketing world, especially post-COVID uh, and post-COVID, would be to really allow for um, past the age gate, very open advertising. I think that would be fair um, and fairly easy to manage. And I know previously, I believe it was two years ago, um, there was some interpretation on using uh, reasonable efforts in order to age gate. And there were some suggestions on having very expensive software to verify whether or not um, a driver's license, which was being produced digitally to uh, prove age of majority to enter a website, whether that would need to be mandated or required. 
um, that was discussed. It was never implemented because it, it, it was actually a nonsense. What stops an underage uh, person from grabbing a driver's license from their mother's purse, right? Right. Um, but I think allowing for marketing activities under an age gate, digitally or otherwise, I think would, would make a lot of sense. Um, and then I think uh, some some more in-person, in-store activations also under an age gate could also be um, useful and helpful and also good for the education process too. Can we talk a bit about age gating for a second? So I go to any website related to cannabis now and you put in your age. I'm never putting in my real age, right? I'm just putting in the, the most expedient form of, and okay, you got me. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely overage, but I'm putting in zero one, zero one. And then, you know, the lowest number of year that can be fast just to get in 2000, right? That's 2000, right? That's exactly. Two zero zero zero. You're in. And, and, and do you want me to remember this for the future? Well, sure. Why not? You know, it, does it have any, I mean, any kid My I have a 10 year old who can do that. Not that he's doing that, but he can. So what are we talking about here in terms of age gating? It's kind of a joke, isn't it? I suppose if you look at it from a practical non, non-regulatory tick box compliance point of view, I see your point. I have an 11 year old and I think that he could also figure out how to get through an age gate to download a 12 plus app for a video game, right? It's the same right. thing. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, um, but I think from policy, we do have to do that. Right. We do have to have some level of responsibility to, to keep that from a policy perspective as a plus age of majority. Plus, um, there are reasons scientifically and otherwise why children should not be exposed to cannabis. Um, what about um, Budweiser? Do they have an age gate on their website? I don't know. I'm being tongue in cheek here, but I don't think that any alcohol company has age gate requirements for their products. And, and can't they kill uh, people? Absolutely. Kill people have absolutely horrible social effects on families. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I think I drive by the Budweiser uh, stadium or whatever. It used to be called the Molson Amphitheater. I, I'm, I'm, right. too, I'm showing my age now. Um, <laughs> but Budweiser or and other alcohol brands also endorse uh, venues where children can go and sit and watch uh, sports events or, or their favorite musician. Mm. Right. There's a, there's a, uh, a dangerous um, uh, perspective that we've started cannabis off with, and that is that it is the same as tobacco. And even with all the myths being disputed with science, we're still caught in this, it's the same as tobacco ideology. I was in front of a judge last year who told me selling cannabis is the same as selling heroin. A judge of the Superior Court. And I was shocked to hear that kind of, um, uh, you know, worldview. On the bench. Right. So I, I, I think that it's doing a disservice, don't you think, to, to pretend that we're, um, we're dealing with something that is as, as toxic or as harmful as tobacco and this focus on, and maybe this should be part of the three-year review is just a, why do we need a cannabis act apart from maybe licensing? But right. is it, is it really, in your opinion, is, is possessing, cultivating, 
or distributing cannabis without a license, is that worthy of jail time? I think it would matter on the scale, right? And I think that's the test criminally in terms of um, where charges could lie. The act does allow for it because you are allowed four plants per household. So I think there is a recognition of that. But I think to your point, Russell, do we need an entire act um, to govern all of those activities or are some of them, um, for example, on are some of them within like the Food and Drug Act, perhaps, right? Right, right. Like we don't have an OxyContin Act. No, we don't. Should we have one? I think it depends on the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, should we have a psilocybin act? Now, you know, are, uh, are, you, are you familiar with the, the, the new evolution of... Um, you know, psychedelics in, in law? I am. Yeah, I am actually. I have been involved in um, the space in the U.S. and here for, for psychedelics. And the way it's been evolving here in Canada is you get an exemption from a min- from the health Minister of Health in right. order to use um, psilocybin, so that's psychedelics derived from psychedelic mushrooms, um, for end-of-life uh, therapy and treatment. So it's on an exemption case-by-case basis. What I'm hearing is that there are so many requests for these types of, of ministerial exemptions that there is consideration of how do we treat these types of substances. Um, so I know just like in the U.S., uh, certain municipalities or other jurisdictions are considering how they want to treat psychedelic use. Hmm. Um, I know Vancouver is, is considering how they treat psychedelic use, but uh, larger in terms of um, federal legislation, what are the modifications that need to be done to the legislation to allow for it? And you're, you, you make a good point, Russell, and do we need a psilocybin act? Probably not. Right. But do we need to modify how we treat and classify these these uh, substances? It's the same with cannabis. Just because it was classified as a certain criminal substance is why we had decades and de- decades of prohibition. It was simply a stroke of the pen, categorization, legislative act, right? And that created generations of people who were criminalized, who were marginalized, all because the law said so, right? Um yes. And if we unpack the social history of that, a lot of that had to do with um, immigration policy, um, anti-immigrant, um, anti-foreigner uh, policies, and using um, so-called drug policy and safety to marginalize certain communities. Um, if you look at the meaning of mar- marijuana and where where that came from, uh, more specifically in the U.S., um, but also in Canada in terms of the Chinese railway workers and um, criminalizing certain activities. Yeah, Ch- Chinese Canadians at, uh, in the 19, early 19th century, after they built our railroad, our national railroad, had, had to find other work, right? And, and they, they, uh, they found work by competing with the union laborers who are all white. And that led to that riot in 1907 in in, um, in uh, Vancouver. That's how we got our first drug law, not because they were studying opium and said, "You know what? We need an opium act. There's too much opium in Canada. Let's let's prohibit opium." Right? It w- it was. You're right. It was against Chinese Canadians' use of opium to marginalize them and to 
uh, uh, make them criminals, right? As soon as that act was put into place, all of a sudden they were criminals, right? Not the day before that act was in in force, but once it happened, right? Exactly. That's horrible. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really horrible time in Canadian history. And we need to, you know, ring this from the rooftops I, I, I know in, in my own way, I've tried to get the a petition in front of the House of Commons to, to get the government to say, okay, the underpinnings, the, re- the real reason we had this law is unsound. It's racist and unscientific, and we never should have had a drug law. We never should have had an Opium Act and all the acts that were renamed after that, right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that where we're going with this conversation? I think so. And if you look at different jurisdictions, so I'm I'm very proud of the fact that Canada was one of the first the first G7 country to legalize. I think that shows a lot of really good progressive policy. I'm also close to uh, the activities that are happening in the U.S. I'm involved with a group that's looking at um, cannabis legalization in the tri-state, and I applaud New York State for uh, providing redress against communities that have been specifically marginalized because of criminalization of cannabis um, and allowing for equity applicants who have been specifically marginalized from uh, criminal records um, and recognition in all three states just of the far-reaching impact of having been criminalized for cannabis. For example, you can't be a daycare worker if you have a criminal record, including cannabis, right? And so if all of a sudden something that because of decriminalization wouldn't have counted as a crime, but because this occurrence happened before a certain stroke of the legislative pen, you're now prohibited from um, a certain line of work for your family because of of uh, uh, what's on the books legislatively. Um, what's happening in, in this tri-state legalization is there's a recognition for that. There's automatic expungement, for example, in New York, uh, which I think is the right way of undoing the uh, the harm that was created from certain of these, these laws and also recognizing the disproportionate impact because it is racialized communities, uh, poor communities who've been impacted, not, um, not, not the hegemonic uh, parts of society. Right. Could, could you just explain a bit of the difference between an automatic expungement and say a pardon that you have sure. to apply for? So I don't have the mechanics, so I can't do a, a playbook on, on what you need. Right. No, um, just overall, just an idea. Of a, of yeah. So just an, an overall would be that you don't, um, you don't need to go through an application process in order to get this rec- record taken off of your history. Right. right. Um, even applying to get your car transferred, right? So when you sell your your car as a used car, that's a lot of admin and paperwork. Imagine having to do that for an expungement for something that's no longer a crime. That's a lot of that's a lot of admin. That's a lot of court time. That's a lot of resource time, both from the government and from private citizens. Whereas if it's automatic and it's just a matter of right and it happens automatically. Um, then it takes away all of the bureaucratic barriers that may prohibit you from, even though you no longer uh, need to have this on your record, it stays on your record because you haven't had the resources to the time, the know-how, 
maybe even the language skills to be able to complete all of the forms, um, submit them in the proper way, to submit them perfectly so they actually meet the specifications, and to have the time um, if there's a hearing process or, or otherwise. So I, I really, really applaud the uh, what's happening in, in New York State and elsewhere, where, where it's just happening automatically. Um, I think it's probably easier if I was a Crown attorney, um, not having to deal with those types of cases uh, versus, you know, bigger fish to fry, I think. Yes. Makes a lot more sense policy-wise. And I, I, I think the impact uh, that they want to make in, in the tri-state is really going to be manifest through how they're implementing their law and how they're drafting their laws. Right. Can you take me back to your first day as a cannabis lawyer in a big cannabis company? And I mean, how, how, what was that like for you? And what did you do? And can you just go back in, in time for me and maybe tell me a couple of stories? Sure. So becoming a, a, a cannabis lawyer was uh, divine timing, I suppose, if you will. So it was 2017 um, before legalization and 2017, when it was really the heyday of the capital markets really supporting and being very excited about um, having a license, even just having a license to build, right? Uh, back in 2016, 17, and the, and the promise of a cannabis uh, cultivation, cultivation license, let alone a sales amendment. Um, so back, back in that time when I was general counsel of a company called New Strike Brands, which developed the Up Cannabis brand together with the Tragically Hip, um, it was really shepherding them through the uh, reverse takeover process. So the company was becoming a public company on the TSX Venture Exchange. So that was very much together with a wonderful external counsel um, uh, guiding them through that process, all of the disclosure, all of the work involved for that. Um, but very quickly, you know, once the company was uh, up and running as a as a as a cannabis company, there was as general counsel, you really are air traffic control or the quarterback. You can use whatever analogy or the conductor of the orchestra uh, for all of the various legal issues you face. So um, as a cannabis lawyer, yes, you are looking at the regulatory aspect. So back then it was the um, access to cannabis for medical purposes regulations. Um, we had a wonderful uh, quality assurance team who were very, very uh, expert in the regs. So they took care of that regulatory piece. But all of those cannabis-specific regulatory pieces would tie into our continuous disclosure obligations as a public company. So all public companies have uh, quarterly reporting requirements, annual reporting uh, requirements, and then also what's called continuous disclosure, updating the market in terms of press releases of material activities, any information that any investor would like to know in order to make a decision whether to trade, and that's to buy or sell or hold Um so knowing what the regulatory landscape and activities were from a cannabis level and incorporating that into how we communicated to comply with our securities obligations was something that I needed to learn very quickly and also work with my team, right? Um, so working with the regu regulatory folks and then um, just generally uh, doing corporate commercial law in terms of contracts. Um, and then acquisitions, there was a lot of activity going on uh, from 16 to 2016, 2017 to 
1819, um, whether it was acquiring other licenses or um, getting strategic investments. Um, I was involved as general counsel in a very interesting and the peak of really the capital markets interest in cannabis in Canada. So uh, we, you know, we, we raised over $150 million in, um, in brokered financings. And that really catapulted the company to be able to finish its, its build and all, all of those types of things. But as a lawyer, it was also really interesting and fascinating because I got to see uh, two types of law being tested. So one was the takeover bids. Um, and then the second was the actual legalization of cannabis in 2018. Um, and those activities all happened within 12 months. So my first year and a half was was very, very high paced and very intense and very, very busy, but fascinating. Fascinate, fascinating because it was all brand new. All mm-hmm. of it was brand new. Um, I was right into it with a very early uh, license holder. Um, and we were actually, you know, plants in the grow rooms and then plants getting ready for sale, uh, plants getting released. It was just absolutely uh, exciting. Um, But we also, from a corporate perspective, from a legal perspective, and this is where I get excited, um, we had signed a plan, uh, we had signed a definitive agreement to be acquired by a company called Canamed. Canamed was license number one. They were based out of uh, Saskatchewan um, and we had agreed to merge and it was a friendly merger. We really saw the opportunities for the companies to work together um, and we had announced our merger and shortly thereafter we had an unsolicited bid or an interloper, an uninvited guest to our little duo um, called Aurora Cannabis. You may be familiar (laughs) with that company. (laughs) Um, so they they came over the top, um, and we we got involved in what was dubbed uh, a bizarre love triangle, if you will. So Canamed and New Strike were trying to merge, and then Aurora came over the top and wanted to um, merge with Canamed while it was already you know heading to the altar with with New Strike, if you will. Right. And so as a result, there was a proxy battle. There were competing circulars flying around, um, and we ended up going to uh, the securities regulators to test the takeover rules. So the takeover bid rules uh, in Canada. Were were amended in 2016. And this was the first time that any of those rules were being tested. So for me as a lawyer, I was just fascinated sitting in the front row at the at the OSC, at the hearing, listening to the arguments. Um, there are four issues being uh, contemplated at the time. And it was absolutely fascinating and exciting to see this happening live. Um, my CEO at the time was sitting beside me and he was just wondering, like, Ruth, when is it my turn to leave? Can I leave now? Um, and I said, no, we're watching new law being made right now. You, you stay seated and you can go after our guys have gone. Um, and it was thrilling to watch that and to be part of that and to see your um, corporate activities be part of shaping what, what was developing in terms of M&A law in Canada. Um, what happened at the end of the day was there was a termination of our agreement with Canamed. Um, so we agreed not to merge. Uh, we had a nine and a half million dollar termination fee. So that was the break fee for us not going ahead with our merger or what was dubbed a keep the ring fee since they went off and merged with Aurora instead. Um, right. So that was, you know, all within a, a year, a year of going public. So it was really frenetic. And then fast forward um, nine, 10 months from there, and we're at legalization, right? It's October, 2018. 
and we're getting first products to market. Uh, we're going through the creative process in terms of Up Cannabis, the brand, and developing that. We had the Tragically Hip as our um, as key stakeholders, so working with them, working with great creatives in terms of uh, what the marketing and branding looks like. And so I already talked about my role as general counsel, as air traffic controller or quarterback of corporate corporate commercial securities things, yes, working with the regulatory team, incorporating that into all of our uh, disclosure obligations, the deal work, but also um, part of my role was to be on the sales and marketing team unofficially. So I, I made myself, I forced myself to be an ex officio member of the sales and marketing team because as you and I discussed earlier, it is so highly regulated, right? Mm -hmm, yes. It's plutonium and tobacco are very dangerous and, and they were are highly regulated regulated in terms of the marketing and branding. So with uh, with our wonderful sales and marketing team, I made a point of being part of a lot of their strategy meetings. So not as a creative contributor, um, but as the fun police, as I was sometimes mm, dubbed. Right. So <laughs> and not not to impede the creative process, but just to remind, you know, this is the whiteboard and these are its edges and to remind them of where the edges were. Um, and then to, to be able to brainstorm, brainstorm and spitball live with a quick gut check with general counsel in the room on, you know, would this work? How does this fly? So we, we would have, I would also have breakaway uh, meetings with some of the other creatives just on, on ideation of various campaign ideas. And some of those campaigns actually ended up winning some awards, which is super exciting. Mm. Um, and it was also a very exciting time for marketing and cannabis because as you know, 2018 October is when the cannabis act came into force. But prior to then, Prior to then, the ACMPR did not have the the explicit rules on promotions and marketing prohibitions. So taking us back to um, 2017, 2018 summer, and right. before you'll remember, and where you and I are both situated in Toronto, you'll remember driving along the Gardner Expressway and seeing billboards for Canopy, right? Yes, that's right. I do. And Tweed along, yes. along the highway because there was no explicit restriction on, no. on those types of activities. Young and Dundas Square, right? One of the busiest right. intersections in Canada also had billboards of right. major cannabis companies because at the time it was still allowed, right? That's right. That's right. And the sponsorship of music events and festivals. I remember that too. Yeah. You know? and, so. I, and I think saying allowed is probably in inaccurate, but it was just not prohibited, right? Right. So yes. I think in that gray areas where uh, there was some risk tolerance for how things were being done. Um, and it was definitely an interesting period of, of, uh, of cannabis history. Do you think going back to that kind of advertising is, um, is where we should ultimately be going? I mean, I know I asked you this earlier in terms of kids safety of our children, which I don't, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the person who says, Oh, well, if, if we're protecting our children, then how are we letting everybody be able to grow four plants in the house? Isn't that a dangerous thing? Well, of course it's not. And we're not really protecting our children from uh, cannabis advertising, are we? Is it, is, it, is it okay to have cannabis billboards? Or what, what do you think about that? I mean, I think before having a meaningful discussion with uh, people in the house, I think 
studies on the impact of whether or not, you know, vice advertising actually does change behavior of children, I think would be interesting. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it does. I know that some of the provinces, especially I'm thinking of Manitoba, had explicit um, expectations for uh, responsibility in terms of uh, in terms of how companies were going to um, educate and and uh, illuminate the public on potential harms and also responsibilities, I think if I think if it's balanced with um, enough of a robust public health education plan, I think we can strike a balance, right? I think our public age education system in Canada is generally very good, and if that's part of the curriculum is on the safety issues with with cannabis. Um, and that's incorporated explicitly. Um, I think those are parts of the responsibilities we can have collectively as a society for having legalized cannabis, as well as having children and having children who grow up in a society where cannabis is legalized. So I think that's a roundabout way of saying, I think we can have that kind of expanded advertising, but um, tempered by other other social measures that we, we can achieve because we have this uh, excellent platform called public education. Sounds good. I, I, I'm all for public education. I think, I think we could make it work. Um, so to go back to our, our very first, uh, point about the three-year review, you mentioned there were other and many areas of review that needed to be done. And we both acknowledge it's amazing for this country to have legalized uh, second only to Euro- Uruguay, and uh, and and other countries are contemplating uh, full on adult use legalization. I know other countries have contemplated medical and have have enacted um, uh, medical legalization. But um, what are some of the if if you're going to advise, say, even the states or other countries in the world? What are some of the things that the Canadian example of legalization has kind of fallen short on? I know, I know, definitely the advertising, and promotion, and packaging for sure. Um, are there any other areas? Like, what about um, the micro licensing? Or I know we we talked about the equalization for underrepresented people in the industry and and the impact that they've had at, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, against uh, people um, enforcing. Uh, the drug law and, and providing some form of redress the way they're doing in, in New York City. But what, what about what about some other things? What, what, what else do you have? I think potency. I think potency in the whole ed- edible category, including um, beverages. I think maybe that we we could do that differently, and maybe we got that wrong. Um, and so tell you'll me, s- can, tell me what what do we have now, and where where did we go wrong with it? Um, so right now the maximum is ten milligrams of THC per package, right? So that can, well, let's use chocolate as an example. You could have four squares of two and a half grams each. You could have one piece that's uh, 10, 10 grams or uh, one piece that's broken up into two pieces of, of five milligrams each. Um, comparing that potency versus what's purportedly advertised in the black market, it's a multiple, right? Of what the potency that you can uh, purportedly get to in the black market. Um, so from a cost and potency perspective, the black market is the winner, right? In terms of efficiency there for the consumer. Um, and then in terms of one of the goals of the Cannabis Act to eradicate the black market 
if it can't compete in an entire category being edibles, which includes drinkables, uh, because the potency is, is not comparable or is not at least, and it, I don't agree that it needs to be comparable or exact to the black market, but if it's not um, an efficient amount or an effective amount, then maybe that should be considered. Obviously weighing uh, responsible use together with that. And you're already seeing the lawmakers recognizing that, right? Because there is proposed legislation to increase the number of uh, beverages that you can actually buy. Um, because as you you know, Russell, there is a limit on how much cannabis um, active ingredient you can buy per person. Um, and with beverages, I mean, uh, who what's May 2 for a weekend? You buy a 24 case of beer, right? I mean, that's one yes. of the cultural tropes. Yes. Um, so being limited to just buying a couple of cans of a cannabis uh beverage um so socially doesn't really fit the consumer behavior um so i think you're already seeing the the lawmakers expand what's permitted to to make to be more reasonable and make consumer sense so i think that's one area that uh when there's a legislative review there there can be something to be done um i think service level level delivery from would be great to have i know that's a resourcing issue and i know that with all of the various uh, other issues that Health Canada is facing, i.e. a global pandemic, um, hats off to them for managing mm-hmm. all of that. In addition to, you know, the upwards of, I don't know how many hundreds of licenses we have. I'm sure it's over 800 now. Um, it, w- it would be great to see some ex- expected delivery times um, just to help manage applicants and especially new applicants who maybe need to be uh, managing their capital or their resources until licensing. So I'd love to see some service level deliveries. And then for the various um, fees that have been taken, what the breakdown of how that's going to be spent, right? Like if we can work together on great places to use our collective uh, tax revenue, um, I think that would be really productive. You don't think it should just go into general revenue as it as it's currently doing? I think there are ways, you can always think of better ways to do things. And I think with something that requires um, additional non-Health Canada social measures to be enacted, I think, you know, having some sort of allocation for certain things like uh, consumer education would be helpful. Right. So that way the judge doesn't say that cannabis is the same as, as heroin. Right. Or that, um, you know, people understand the effects of cannabis on the youth, the, the young brain developing and all those types of factual things that, that is helpful for people to know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's your, what's your opinion on the ubiquity of the white man in the cannabis, uh, uh, I guess, in uh, the industry level, the highest industry level positions of cannabis companies seem to be attracting just white men. How, first of all, why? Second of all, what can we, what can we do about this? Isn't, isn't It's not representative of our culture. What's going on? So I have lots of things to say about this, but I'll say just a couple. Um, you could say lots too. <laughs> <laughs> I think from a capital markets perspective, the same uh, groups that were investing, developing, backing these companies 
were the same from, say, uh, junior mining or other sectors, right? right? And typically made up of that exact demographic that you, that you just mentioned. So I think it started from there. Um, I think an opportunity was really missed in terms of this is a brand new industry. We can build it how we want um, and we can design it in ways that can be better than other industries. We missed a mark in terms of really thinking about are we being inclusive, right? Have we really done a thorough search for talent, right? Not just who we know or some guy that so-and-so's knows. And that's the problem um, and it's not intentional necessarily, but from an anthropological, sociological perspective, it's very familiarity is a very um, easy way to grow a group, right? To add to add someone you already know or who is already known to you, and chances are that's going to be someone who looks like you or lives in a similar neighborhood or has the same sort of social milieu. And when that's the practice for how you're building companies or how you're building groups, you're your likelihood of having blind spots and not including certain people is just systemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was an opportunity missed to say, hey, have we been inclusive? And, and if not, why not, right? And if this is important to us, how do we build that in? Where are we not looking? Where are we not training? Where, where are we not um, incorporating, right? Um, I'm excited from a different point of view that, so on, on the big um, stock exchanges like the uh, the TSX, the the main board, you do have to comply uh, comply or explain when you don't have uh, diverse recruitment or representation. And there are various governance reports on female repre- representation on boards. Um, so there is a push really towards um, institutionalizing that requirement. Um, and so that's naturally just going to trickle down to industry. And I think that's that's a good thing. I mean, the research does show that when you have diversity on management teams and boards, that the results are just better for shareholders and, and otherwise. I can only imagine to be better. Absolutely. Does the I know that most Canadian cannabis companies, the last question, um, listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange because it was TSX was rejecting many applications. Um, do they have the same requirements for uh, explaining why your board is not diverse? No, they don't. Not yet. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if if more and more um, requirements were just universal. I think just because that that is where the puck is going, and um, clients are also demanding it like big corporates, when they're looking at service providers, they, they want to know what's your, uh, what's your diversity scorecard, if you will. And then also the move towards ESG investing, right? So looking at your environmental, social and governance impacts. So I think it naturally incorporates those, those elements. Ruth, I have 10,000 more questions to ask you. So we have to have you back on again. It's such a pleasure to, uh, to, to, to talk to you and to, to hear your perspective. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Russell. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Cannabis Law in Canada. As you may guess, this interview is not legal advice. And if you need legal advice, please contact a lawyer. We're always working on making this the best podcast for our listeners. So if you have suggestions for an interview or ideas for episodes, please contact us at CannabisLaw.ca. 